the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up, I'll tell you how the cybersecurity infrastructure agency, CISA, knew the risks and dangers of absentee ballots and mail-in drop boxes and still worked to promote them and to censor the public from discussing those exact risks and dangers. Debbie's going to join me for our weekly roundup. We're going to talk about the Colorado case before the Supreme Court. We're going to talk about how to deport illegals and also the example of Javier Millet. Hey, if you're watching on Rumble or listening on Apple, Google, or Spotify, please subscribe to my channel. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. this voice. The times are crazy. In a time of confusion, division, and lies, we need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. This has been uh, quite an eventful week. Big um, decisions on the border deal that has happily gone into a crash and burn in the Senate. It is now off the table and um, McConnell and Schumer are trying to rescue the Ukraine funding and rescue the Israel funding. But the border thing is um, is a is a done um, disaster. It's been shut down happily. And, of course, the massive Supreme Court case on uh, removing Trump from the ballot in Colorado. Many of us didn't think that was going to fly. And the hostility of the court makes it pretty clear that it's not going to fly. Debbie's going to join me. We're going to talk about these things. Um, I want to talk in this opening segment about um, some very interesting documents that have come out about CISA. Now, what is CISA? The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency. It's an influential part of the government. It's supposed to maintain um, cyber uh, protection uh, for elections and for other things. Now, as it turns out, CISA, based upon internal documents and reports, knew that mail-in balloting was insecure dangerous, susceptible to fraud, and not even necessary at all. Not even necessary at all. Why? Because there was no credible evidence that COVID was uh, going to spread if people voted in person. Lots of other countries were having in-person voting. There was no evidence that that was enhancing the spread of COVID. By and large, people are standing in line to vote outdoors. Then they go and vote and leave and go home. So the the whole pretext that we have to change the rules, that we have to have a different way of voting, that we need to be installing all these drop boxes because people can't even be expected, what, to take your vote to City Hall? No, you have, you've got to have a drop box in your neighborhood. All of this was done on a false pretext. And CISA knew that. Moreover, CISA knew that um, 
mail-in balloting and mail-in drop boxes have all kinds of problems that normal voting doesn't have. Now, you don't need to be a genius. You don't need to be in CISA. You don't actually need to have sort of cyber um, uh, knowledge in order to know that a vote in person is very secure. There's a whole team of people there. You sign in, you show your ID, you go in behind a curtain, you're given a ballot, you vote the ballot, and you leave without the ballot. The ballot is already scanned, it's already put in, and all that remains is for the ballot to be counted, to be tabulated. That's it. So the possibilities for cheating there are really hard. I mean, how can you cheat? What are you going to do? Bring another ballot in your pocket and switch the two ballots? The, the, the chances of cheating in person are... Not impossible, but they're very, very low. On the other hand, in a mail-in ballot, the ballot is mailed out. Uh, it may or may not go to the right person. It may or may not go to the right address. Even once it gets there, the ballot is opened by who? Not necessarily by the person it's addressed to. Could be opened by a family member. Could be opened by somebody else. Uh, the ballot is then filled out. There's often a, there's a signature on the envelope. By the way, not on the ballot, but on the envelope. Often that signature isn't properly checked or matched or verified. Then the ballots are mailed back. Again, that itself is a dicey process, not just because the post office is a dicey operation, but also because you give it to somebody, hey, listen, you know, uh, my, you give it to your, to your brother or family, will you drop the ballot off? Let's say he decides, I don't like the way my brother's going to vote. I'm not going to drop it off at all. So the so SISA is aware of the 15 different ways in which voting can be obstructed, can be tampered with, makes things delayed, makes things more difficult, and as I say, is not even necessary in the first place. So you would think that with this knowledge, SISA would... Um, come out against mail-in balloting, try to keep the process as secure as possible. But in fact, SISA does the opposite. SISA promotes mail-in balloting. SISA even promotes censorship of people who raise the very same questions, the very same objections, point out the very same risks that SISA is fully aware of. So people are censored, in other words, for raising legitimate questions about counting about delays, about the possibilities of fraud. Uh, and again, SISA on the one hand knows it, and at the same time, they're participating in the censorship operation. Now, SISA at one point does brief the media, but guess what? Even though SISA briefs the media on these risks that SISA is aware of, the media articles that appear say the exact opposite of what SISA says. In other words, the media goes... Um, decides that because Donald Trump is questioning mail-in balloting, because Donald Trump is saying that the process is going to be tampered with, there's going to be fraud, the media ignores the CISA warnings and basically attacks Trump for spreading misinformation, even though, again, the media has been briefed by CISA that these are legitimate dangers, these are real questions about mail-in balloting. So what we're seeing here is I've talked... Uh, at other times about this kind of institutional breakdown in the United States, and we're seeing it on so many different levels. And here we have two separate institutions, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency. They're not to be trusted, and, 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 and they have earned our mistrust and our distrust. And then the media, which is not to be trusted. In fact, as I've said, when you read something or see something on CNN or MSNBC, uh, not only should you not believe it, it's almost like you should start off your starting premises to believe the exact opposite, because it is more likely that the exact opposite is true 
than what you're hearing. These are propagandists. They are deceptive people. And being on guard against their lies is now one of the necessary duties of citizenship. How are you feeling these days? I feel great. And one of the reasons I believe I feel better is because I take this balance of nature, fruits and veggies in a capsule, so easy to take. They have an amazing story of how this product was developed by Dr. Douglas Howard. It's right there on their website. Balance of Nature receives over a thousand success stories every single month. They have hundreds of thousands of customers who have purchased billions of capsules of their fruits and veggies over the past 20 years. Their products are gluten-free. They're non-GMO. They contain no added sugars or synthetics. I think if you're looking for something to make you feel better naturally, you should definitely give Balance of Nature a try. In fact, order today. Whether you order online or call them direct, you may, you got to use the promo code AMERICA. You'll get a special offer at 35% off. Here's the number to call, 800-246-8751. Again, 800-246-8751. Or go to balanceofnature.com. When you use discount code AMERICA, you'll get 35% off. I recently read an article that said 84% of New Year's resolutions fail in the first six weeks. It got me thinking about PhD weight loss and nutrition and why it's been such a success for Debbie and for me. Why haven't we gained any of our weight back? I lost 27, Debbie lost 24. According to the article, most people blame their failure on lack of time, motivation, and a loss of zeal. As I was reading, I can kind of see why we were successful on the program. It's because they make it simple. It doesn't take a lot of extra time. They're masters of motivation. You got a team of coaches by your side the whole time. You don't lose your zeal. Why? Because every week you make great strides. I lost two pounds. I lost three pounds. So you're excited about moving forward. Don't make getting healthy another New Year's resolution fail. This year, call PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition. Make 2024 your year. Here's the number to call, 864-644-1900 to get started. You can also go online at myphdweightloss.com. Don't do this alone. The number to call, write it down, 864-644-1900. Debbie's here with me for our um, Friday roundup, and um, well, uh, she's not quite herself the last couple of days, and it's um, it's not because of my references on the podcast. Um, it's actually because of her mom, who has um, not been doing well. So um, let's talk about. Uh, I mean, your mom's eighty-seven, mm-hmm. and um, and she's had various ailments over the years. But it seems like at a certain age, these things like intensify or they all gang up on you. And then you're suddenly faced with the prospect of my mom won't be here forever. Yeah. Well, as you know, um, for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, every time my mom gets a cold, it goes directly to her lungs. Um, She gets pneumonia, very ill. This is why I was so afraid during COVID that COVID would, would be, would get her because, because of this, right? I mean, you had her um, wearing a mask before I, I COVID. Had her, yeah, I did. And, and, you know, everybody says masks don't work, but, um, but for her, it was more of a matter of, of just catching little colds, you know, people sneezing or coughing in, in her face and all of those things. It, it minimized it. It maybe didn't eliminate it, but it did minimize it. So anyway. All that to say, uh, thank goodness she got a very mild form of COVID during the, during the pandemic and she was fine. It didn't do anything to her lungs because it wasn't that type, right? Uh, but, um, 
she for the last since maybe December, she has been actually even before then for the last three months, she's been having this horrible cough and um, she got diagnosed with COPD. But um, nothing that they've given her worked. And so uh, in the last few few days, uh, it got to to where she really couldn't even breathe. So she got went to the hospital and she's there now. And I'm leaving, you know, also in a few days here um, to be with her um, and her birthday's next week. Um, so I wanted to spend her birthday with her anyway. So I was going to go anyway, but I'm going earlier than planned. And, um, you know, just keep, keep her in your prayers. She is, she is very, um, uh, devout and she's 88. So it, it's, you know, we know, we know where she's going and, and, and that's a comfort. But obviously it's it, when you have ailing parents, um, you still, it's I mean, still it's hard. interesting how you, um, it's still a blow, uh, yeah. when you lose a parent and it doesn't matter what the age is. No. I mean, my dad died. And the year 2000, uh, I was 39, but I felt it, you know, because I, he had been such a influence in my life that I realized it, it dawns on you that, and of course, in your case, you've been raised by your mom. Single mom. Since you were 10. Yep. Uh, and your mom left Venezuela, came to America. So that's been your, she's been your support all the way through and your mom is a major character i she gotta is. say is she's a very she's very social she loves in fact covid hit her hard because she loves to get out there yeah. she loves to do things she's a she's a definite people person and she loves being the center of attention and 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 you know we used to always tease her because she loved going to the hospital so that people could go visit her <laughs> she loved the, the visits oh my gosh i also was oh. chuckling because you once said that you know, because your mom, all, every time we would call her, she seemed to be going to a funeral. Yeah, she and, liked and that not too. Only, and I got the idea it was because she in just not enjoyed funerals, but enjoyed the the social aspect of funerals. But then she also made the point of view that this is a way to ensure that many people come to her, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is totally in character, yeah. in character yeah. for your mom. So, so anyway, but in any event, let's talk about some of the yeah. big things that happened this week. Um, one of them, of course, was the. Um, the Colorado case coming before the Supreme Court. Now, you know, we are we customarily expect the left just to go down the ideological road. In fact, they're more reliable in doing that than our side is. And yet here it was a case where you had Elena Kagan, you had uh, even uh, Katanji Jackson expressing skepticism that Colorado could throw Trump off the ballot. Do you think, why do you think that was? Well, it's obvious, honey. I mean, if if they could do it to Trump, we could do it to Biden. So that's what dawned on them. Absolutely. So they weren't doing it because, because they're committed Trump to and principle, not because or because they believe no, in the Constitution. It, None of that. It 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 dawned on them that this could also be done to their candidate and their side because we do have Republican states that would say, you know what. We're not having Biden on the ballot because number one, he's, he's involved in all of these shady deals with, with China. So check. 
He uh, so that's giving aid and comfort to right. the enemies of the Iran. Exactly, Iran. The border. The border. His corruption. He, exactly. Uh, what about not to mention the fact? What about the efforts to rig the 2020 election? All that, of the above. Isn't that an insurrection? All of the above. Yeah. And so if we say it's an insurrection, then by golly, we're going to take him off the ballot because we believe it's an insurrection. So where does this stop when states do not want to participate in our national election? We will essentially, you know how they talk about the end of democracy? My friend, that will be the end of democracy. Yeah. So they, re- in other words, what you're saying is that they respect power politics. They recognized in, in a Machiavellian way that even though we, the left, have been pushing this, I mean, th- there are innumerable leftist uh, law professors who have been arguing that, that, yes, Colorado has every right. There are all these amicus briefs filed with the court by leftist organizations, all backing. And so I think it's very interesting to see the left take a whipping, not just from Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas, but also from, in a sense, their own justices. Their own side. Because what are they going to say uh, when if the decision comes out nine to one, I mean, nine to zero or eight to one, it's such a slap down. And this is the, by the way, this is the first big case of all the Trump cases. Mm-hmm. This is the first big yeah. case that's going up to the Supreme Court. So I, I think just based on the arguments, I was quite encouraged to see that the court is like, uh, you know, there's no end to this. If you let a state make a factual determination, this was an insurrection according to us. There's no end to it. No end. Um, and let's talk about one of those, I believe, real insurrections going on, and that is the influx of these people coming in. The border. The border. You know how there are candidates, including our very own Brandon, who say, I'm going to deport every single illegal that we have in this country. And I always tell you, that is very easy to say, but very difficult to do. How do you round up Everyone who's living in the shadows right now, who who doesn't who pays cash for everything, who doesn't leave a trail. How do you get those people? How can we get them in a bus back to Mexico or wherever they came from? How do we actually actually do that? Well, I mean, this is how I would do it. And, and of course, I agree that once you've created this situation where where these people are scattered, you don't know where they are. Uh, it's not going to be easy, and you're not going to get all of them. You're gonna, you're only going to get some of them. So the question then becomes, how do you get some of them? The first question you have to ask is, is there a way to get some of these people to self-deport? Because obviously, if you can get people to leave on their own, it's going to be better. I mean, the um, the second question is. You have to ask, who do these people interact with? What is the support structure? Well, let me tell you something right now. I, as you know, there is a, like a big controversy right now in New York that illegal immigrants in New York are going to get a prepaid debit card in a $53 million program, city program. Right now, they don't even have money to pay their, their, like, City workers, they're laying off people. They have all kinds of fiscal they're, problems. They're, they're even trying to defund parts of the police, all these things. But yet these people are going to get prepaid cards for food and shelter and whatever else. So if they know, if these people are gra- getting these cards, they obviously know who these people are, right? So instead of giving them these cards, why don't you give them a one-way ticket to Mexico? 
Well, that's true. But I, I think I think what this example points to is the fact that even if you have a federal policy of deporting illegals, there will be cities, cities. and states right. that are run by Democrats but, that will try to subvert it. But again, there a lot of these cities are complaining that, you know, when we bust the uh, uh, the illegals in in buses, Texas right? Sent Texas them sent them Florida on a bus. Florida sent them on the bus to Chicago, to New York, Philadelphia. They're complaining, right? So they know that even though they call themselves sanctuary cities, they really know they're not super. You know, no. I mean, but I think what it. they're doing is their the, their complaints are not so much send these people home. Their complaints are we're not getting enough federal aid. To pay for bankrolling all these people, yeah. so it's almost like what the what these cities are doing, uh, including Mayor Adams and others, is they're saying, "Hey Biden, if you want these people in, you got to bankroll them. You got to provide federal aid. We don't want to be raiding the city budget. Why? Because in cities like like Chicago, as you know, there are black communities where activists yeah. are coming forward now. So there. So bottom line is that these black activists are coming forward. They're not going to vote Democrat. Right. They're, they're even gonna, saying that. They're going to lose this constituency that they have had for so long because of what they're doing. So I don't know why they're taking such a gamble on these illegals. I mean, is it a case where they feel like, you know what, we'll wait it out. These people will have children. These children that will be born in America will become citizens. They will vote in 18 years. We're going to guarantee a one-party You know, honey, that's, that's part of it. But there's another part of it that, that is a little more sly, uh, and that is you mentioned to me just, was it yesterday, that California is going to get four, potentially four new congressional districts, right? Now, think about that. People are leaving California. So how is it possible that a state that is losing its citizens who are going to other states, yeah. there's a whole procession of Californians coming to Texas, for example, how is it gaining population? The answer is illegal. Illegal. And yeah. it is a, it is a detail that maybe needs to be fixed, but in the census right now, a census is a body count. They don't discriminate between legals and illegals, and the census is used as the basis for, for apportionment. Exactly. So California, by gaining illegals, gains population, which means it gains political representation, which means it gains Democrats, which means the Democrats benefit that way. So quite yeah. apart from having to wait a whole generation yeah. for them to have children for their children to grow up this is a way they benefit yeah, now yeah and from it's illegals. and, and, and that's guys, not even counting voter fraud no it's not and and guys guess what it's it's going to happen in texas we are going to become like california so you know it, it because of all the illegals yeah here. and this is why it's so important to to do something about it now because look if we lose this next election, I'm really convinced that we we're going to lose the country. And and I don't know. I don't know about you, but I don't know that there's any other country to go to, really. In in all actuality, I mean, there. I believe there are places to go to in the world if you're in, in I, that, if you're well, going to you know to what? be but forced to, to not to if flight. Not if 
the left follows because as I've told you yeah. every time well the goal of the left is global tyranny I'm, global in, in the tyranny sa- at least global tyranny now they don't call it tyranny because to them it's a, a certain type of freedom because to them you know the trans phenomenon is freedom abortion is freedom so they have come up with a whole new uh, definition of yeah, freedom yeah but along along with their freedom there's also a, a fiscal portion to their freedom there's and that is bankruptcy because when you pay Peter to, when you rub Peter to pay Paul, guess what's going to happen when you don't have any more Peters? You know, I mean, I'm just saying. Well, absolutely, so, and then not to mention the fact that their freedom goes along with I mean, censorship, but, but going at, after political opponents, one-party states. Look at South America. Look what's happened to Venezuela. Look what happened to Argentina. So Argentina again, before Millet. the left is a cancer, not just with social issues, but with fiscal issues. They go together. Right. So again, the, the, it, it's not even a matter of losing, losing like our, our kids to like the, the trans issue or abortion or anything like that. It's also the fact that we are going bankrupt as a nation and we are. I mean, look at the, the, the trillion, do- trillions of dollars in debt we are. In about 20 years, it's going to be like a billion, a million dollars per family. Well, even the <laughs> interest on the to, debt, I just know? read today, the interest on the debt is now exceeds the entire defense budget. Think I about mean, that. So exactly. you're looking at the line items of the, of the budget and the biggest one, the biggest one, bigger than any single social program, bigger than the defense budget, interest, not even the debt, but interest, just the interest. on the debt. Wow. We're headed... Not in a good direction, guys. There's nothing worse than hearing about people living in pain, especially when you don't have to. That's why I want to tell you about Keith from Washington and his Relief Factor story. After years of activity from college football to running a martial arts studio at age 51, Keith's body felt like it was wearing out. So he gave Relief Factor a try. Keith says he now has, quote, little to no pain in my knees and highly reduced neck pain. He's feeling so much better. He pursued a second degree black belt. Wow, what a story. You know, on a personal note, that Relief Factors worked for Debbie, for me, our family, and our friends. If you're living with aches and pains, see how Relief Factor, a daily drug-free supplement, could help you feel and live better every day. To get started, try the Relief Factor three-week quick start kit. It's only $19.95 and comes with a feel better or your money back guarantee. So what do you have to lose? Visit relieffactor.com or you can call 800-4-RELIEF. Again, it's 800-4-RELIEF or go to relieffactor.com. You'll feel the difference. Mike Lindell and the employees of MyPillow want to thank my listeners for all your continued support. Thank you. They're having an overstock clearance sale right now for the best prices ever when you use promo code Dinesh and you get free shipping on your entire order. Get 50% off the MyPillow 2.0. That's the pillows. Also on the brand new flannel sheets that just came in. Get six-pack towel sets for just $29.98 and take advantage of free shipping on the larger items like mattresses and mattress toppers, 100% made in the U.S. USA on sale for as low as $99.99. Everything is on sale. The brand new kitchen towels, the bath towels, the dog beds, the robes, the blankets, the couch pillows, and so much more. So check it out to get the best specials ever. Go to MyPillow.com. Use promo code Dinesh or you can call 800-876-0227. Again, it's 800-876-0227. Get free shipping on your entire order while supplies last. I'm back with Debbie for our Friday roundup. In the last segment, honey, you mentioned Javier Millet. And apparently Millet 
is in Israel this week. And you subscribe. I always chuckle about this because you subscribe to a very left-wing Jewish publication. Yeah, I'm not sure why, actually. It's called Haaretz. <laughs> and these guys, this is sort of like, you know, uh, MSNBC, yeah. Yeah, Israeli yeah. version. Yeah. And a lot or, of their or articles. Or even Mother Jones. Or even Mother Jones. <laughs> and, um, and what is... Uh, so eerie is that the same arguments you get from the left here about the trans. Uh, I mean, we talk about Trump derangement syndrome. These people have they have BB derangement they have BB syndrome. derangement syndrome yeah, totally. Yeah, and and not to mention the fact that they're often even willing to it seems empower the enemies of Israel. To yeah, deliver that, a blow that is to their crazy. domestic, what we see here. I know. It's, it, a, but it's it is, the same thing. But it is crazy. So what's funny here is that here's Millet. He's in Israel. He's at the wall. He's yeah. praying at the wall. Yeah. But look at this. They go on to say uh, that um, they go on to say that Millet has, quote, positioned himself as a firm ally of Israel. As if he's not a firm ally, this is like a political positioning. It also goes on to say Millet, uh, who was raised Catholic. Now, they, they, they nowhere mention that Millet wants to convert. Is converting, is converting. in the process of right, converting right. to Judaism. Yep. Uh, and then they, but they go on to, they go on to say, they go on to say that Millet is kind of a right winger. He's changing price controls on medicine and food and, and so on. And then they, they say, quote, his itinerary, it seems, is studded with rabbis. <laughs> now, first of all, he's in Israel. <laughs> Second of all, he's converting to Judaism. He obviously has an affinity with meeting with these rabbis right. and learning about, probably learning about the, the yeah. Jewish law yeah. and the history and, and also about their situation. They almost act like they don't trust him. They don't like, trust him. Like, what's he up to? Why is he meeting with rabbis? What's yeah. his What's his agenda? Well, look at this. It's unusual. I'm quoting. It's unusual <laughs> for world leaders, and particularly ones who aren't Jewish. So right there, <laughs> yeah, they're right there. They're they don't want to let their readers they know that know. Millet is on the path to Judaism. Right. And for a little bit of context, Millet was raised Catholic, but apparently he became alienated not because uh, he didn't like the Catholic religion, but he doesn't like the current Pope. <laughs> He's not a fan of Francis, and in fact. Who is, you know, um, or at least many of us are not. And isn't he um, from Argentina as well, the Pope? He is. Yeah. He's from Argentina. Right. So Millet probably thought, right, it, he so he probably identifies Francis with the liberation exactly. theology, the mm -hmm. socialism, yep. the very forces that in his view Social and justice, rightly have yep. destroyed mm -hmm. Argentina. Yeah. Uh, and so, but, um, but Millet has been, um, and, and this now we're going beyond the article, He's trying, he's really trying to bring about a sort of Reaganite revolution in Argentina. Right. Now he's dealing with a Congress that is not entirely on his side and right. is blocking Ooh, him. That sounds familiar. Oh. Yeah. Well, Reagan yeah. had some of that, although yeah. Reagan was very successful in the beginning. Uh, and yeah. also again in the middle of his term in being able to win pretty decisive majorities for tax cuts and tax reform. Right. He was blocked by Congress in some other ways. Um, yeah. Some of the, uh, the, the nuclear policies and right. so on. Uh, strategic defense was blocked right. by Congress. So, but Millet has a very, he combines this sort of very clear sense of, I want to go from here to there. Now I realize that I'm not going to be able to get all the way there. I also realize that so, it's, at times I have to take the bus, at times mm -hmm. I get to take the train. Only in a few cases can I fly. So he combines a clarity of goal. 
mm-hmm. with a pragmatism about how to get there. Mm-hmm. And he and he's very forthright with his own supporters. In fact, some of the extreme libertarians are blasting him yeah, yeah. and saying, you know, you know, you're not yeah. getting it done, Malay. And he's like, I can't. No, I, he I, can't I, go from zero to ten, right? Yeah, and, and not can't. to mention he's not a dictator, right? So he has to operate within democratic the systems. Yes. So the, ironically, the very guy yeah. Malay that people say and and. I love this, you know, you have guys like Millet, he wins the election and people say he's anti-democratic or he's a threat to democracy. Mm-hmm. And you know who else they're saying that about? Yeah, Bukele. Bukele. So mm-hmm. Bukele wins by, look, 87%. Bukele has won <laughs> by the biggest margin of any democratic leader in living memory. He annihilated the opposition. So his success is a triumph of democracy. Mm-hmm. So right. what does Ilhan Omar say? We need to investigate Bukele. He's a threat well, to democracy. His, you know, the, the women, you know, the, the women's march in El Salvador, right? They were calling him a fascist. He's a fascist. He's a fascist. And I'm like thinking, wow, doesn't that sound familiar? It sounds <laughs> familiar. And, and again, it, he, think of it. What the reason they say he's a fascist uh-huh. is because he brings in the military and annihilates the gangs, and yeah. and and he explained that. In fact, in his inaugural speech, uh, Bukele goes, "Listen, I had a choice: either I prefer the rights of the criminals." Or I prefer the rights of the citizens. Mm-hmm. Because I chose the rights of the citizens. Yeah. And do you realize that El Salvador, which was one of the most dangerous countries in the world, is today the safest country in the world? Think about that. I can't even get over that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, heard that. It, it, it really shows you that a politician who campaigns firmly on I mean, something but as it also, important as this. Not, a, not to mention, it also shows you that you can win against the cartels. Because you know how we always think, oh, once the cartel takes over... They're so powerful because they, they've got this and they've got that. And, and this Bukele was faced with that. And he goes, you know what? I've got the military. And he lines up these guys, and many of them are 18 and 19 years old. And he, and he gives this incredibly inspirational speech, basically saying, I'm giving you the weapons... Now go and take back your country. Yeah, and they did. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. So, so this is and, and the and the media's dead silence about about well, they're they're dead silent about Malay right now. They're very uncomfortable with Malay. They're dead silent about Bukele. So, what's happening is that an alternative model is emerging in the world that works, and it works for poor countries. I mean, El Salvador was poor before; it's poor now, but it's poor and safe. Yeah. And it was poor and unsafe. And I'm sure that he will at some point have a good economic plan for, for the people as well. I think well. he does. Yeah, yeah. I think he does. Let's switch uh, gears and uh, let's um, talk about uh, this interesting case where you got a school shooter. And uh, often, as often happens, the school shooter in some cases is apprehended, in other cases ends up dead. But the question at issue here is, were the parents of the school shooter responsible for what he did through negligence. And I assume that what they're talking about is, let's say the guy made threats. Let's say he it was well known that this was a very dangerous kid. He posted online or he, he made declarations, I'm going to do this. He, he, he accumulates a big weaponry. He's around shooting. Maybe he's, maybe he's carving up animals. I don't know. So the question then becomes, in a society where parents don't have full control over their children, but are supposed to exercise a certain discipline over their children. And in this particular case, the parents were found guilty by a jury of 
manslaughter, which means rec- um, reckless behavior, right? Manslaughter is like you're driving on the highway, you kill somebody, you didn't mean to kill them. Obviously, the parents didn't intend for their son to do this. What do you make of extending the responsibility to parents? Is it fair? Is it too much? Well, to be honest, I think that it depends. It really depends because if the parents knew that their their kid, their child was reckless and if they thought that perhaps maybe mentally disturbed, maybe had a mental condition and they didn't try to intervene, then yes, I think they're reckless because you you know that your child is capable of doing something so horrific, right? And yet, you did nothing to stop it. So, if that was the case with this mother, if if there were a lot of red flags and she ignored all of them, then yes, I think it's great. I think it sends a really big message to parents. You know what? If you don't watch your kids and if you don't try to intervene before something really bad happens. Or, or if you can't control them, report them. I mean, think of it this well, way. Yes. You, have a, you have a kid. Let's say you're a, you're a single mom or even parents, but the kid is much bigger and stronger than the parents, right? And the kid goes, I'm going to go out and I'm going to I'm going to kill some people. And you can't stop them. You're not strong enough. The, the kid's yeah. going to, you don't have any control over the kid, uh, whether or not they live in your house. Report them. Yes, but sometimes, and this is, I know this for a fact, sometimes what happens is that they report it and the, and the law does nothing because they say, well, he hasn't done anything. Yeah, but we see, in that case, you can't prosecute the parents. You know, okay, that's what I mean. Yeah. Is that if, did she do this? Did she in fact, try doing this and and was met with all kinds of obstacles like no you can't you cannot institutionalize him you can't you you can't incarcerate him anything yet yeah he hasn't committed a crime threats right he hasn't committed a crime therefore we can't do it so if she's if she took steps to to do this to prevent him from hap- from doing something so so bad like this then yeah i don't think she's responsible but if she didn't so i think what we're saying yeah, is that this situation what we're saying is that this is a fact dependent um tort- sort of prosecution that it should be the parents should be able to defend themselves by saying well listen a, I, I, I didn't have fun, full control. B, I took the steps that I thought were reasonable under the circumstances. And C, the authorities. So that would be an adequate defense. But if the parent doesn't take those steps, exactly. you're saying, and in some ways, as we know, and this is sadly true, a lot of parents, you know, and this is true even in small things, become enablers of bad behavior on the part of their kids. And so it's not unreasonable to say that if the parent hadn't been the enabler like this, the kid wouldn't have turned out like that and the kid wouldn't have done these things. So it's a complex business interfering with the parent-child relationship. But it seems to me in these extreme circumstances where the kid is not just a delinquent, not just a bully, but going out and killing people, it's possible that the responsibility does extend to the parents. I'm continuing my discussion of the case for Stephen Douglas, and I remind you of a quotation that Douglas said that I quoted a few days ago. Douglas says, I'm not pro-slavery. I think it's a curse beyond computation to both white and black, but we exist as a nation by virtue only of the Constitution, and under that, there is no way to abolish it. Now, why is it that Douglas 
is so emphatic in taking his stand on the Constitution? Well, the reason is that the abolitionists who are at the other end of the spectrum, let's remember that the abolitionists are they the sort of far wing of the Republican Party. The mainstream of the Republican Party is not abolitionist. Lincoln is not an abolitionist. But what are the abolitionists saying? What the abolitionists are saying is, we have no allegiance to the Constitution. We don't care about the Constitution. Slavery is wrong, period, end of story. And so if you have to throw out the Constitution, the abolitionists would sometimes have meetings at which they would burn the Constitution. It seems a little hard to believe. Um, uh, we might think of the, the Southern slaveholders burning the Constitution, but no, the Southerners took their stand on the Constitution. Uh, and uh, so Calhoun, for example, had an ingenious theory of constitutional interpretation that essentially made the Constitution into a pro-slavery document. Douglas is not the same as Calhoun. Uh, Calhoun is a Southern Democrat. Um, Douglas is a Northern Democrat. Now, they are both in their own way defending the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party is the party of slavery. And that's what Lincoln will say. He'll say, look, you've got, you've got pro-slavery Democrats in the South. And you've got concealed pro-slavery Democrats in the North, including Douglas. So we'll come to Lincoln's ar argument eventually. But here is Douglas, and you'll see that uh, Douglas here is taking a position different, not just from Lincoln, but also from Calhoun. He's talking about slavery. In the North, he says, it is not to be expected that we should take the position that slavery is a positive good, a positive blessing. And then he gives a kind of a crushing argument for why he's not going to do that. He's not going to say that slavery is a good thing. He goes, if we did assume such a position, it would be a very pertinent inquiry. Why do you not adopt this institution? This actually reminds me of a very amusing quip that was made by Abraham Lincoln at one point. Some guy was talking to Lincoln about the virtues of slavery and why it was good for the slave and why there was nothing wrong with it and slavery was actually an excellent idea. And Lincoln's response is, well, if you keep telling me this and if you're persuaded of this, why don't you become a slave? If slavery is such a wonderful thing, why don't you derive the advantage of it by assuming the position of a slave? But you won't do that, which suggests that you know deep down it's not such a great thing after all. That's kind of what Douglas is saying here. He's saying, I'm not going to say that slavery is a good thing, because if it's a good thing, well, why don't you have slavery in Illinois? Why aren't you promoting slavery, Douglas, in your own state? And he goes on to say, we have molded our institutions at the North as we have thought proper. And now we say to you in the South, if slavery be a blessing, it is your blessing. If it is a curse, it is your curse. Enjoy it. On you rest all the responsibility. So we see here how Douglas is pressing toward his central argument and all his other arguments will radiate out of this central claim. And that is that, look, on slavery, as on all moral issues, by and large, communities have to make their own decision and live with the consequences. So slavery has maybe some advantages. Maybe it's an efficient way to do plantation agriculture. Maybe it's a great way to grow cotton, but it's going to have a lot of disadvantages. You're going to have people living in your house or in your household who want to murder you. You're going to have people, for example, who are going to disrupt your family. You're probably going to have mulattoes showing up on your plantation because of the philandering of the slave owner. Douglas, again, doesn't say any of this explicitly but he's implying it. He's saying, if you want slavery, you're going to get the advantages of it. 
and the disadvantages of it. You're going to have runaways. You're going to have to chase them to free states, try to get them back. That's your problem. We don't think it's so great. That's why we don't have it in the North. So Douglas is always searching for a way, essentially for people who disagree about slavery, to live in the same country as fellow citizens. That's the interesting question, because Douglas is saying if there's any moral question so big that people not only disagree about it, but don't even have a way to disagree, how can they continue as fellow citizens? Now, California, as I mentioned yesterday, became a free state in 1850. Uh, and Douglas looks out west and he says, what happened in California? Did Congress go to California and force California, listen, you can't have slavery, you must be a free state, we're not going to allow you to have slavery even though you want to? No, Congress didn't do that. The Californians looked at slavery and they go, well, it's not really going to work here. We don't want it. And so even though there were Southerners who had moved to California, the simple fact of it is without a whole bunch of um, even conflict or strife, California decided it made sense to be a free state. And uh, abolitionist sentiment uh, in California was virtually non-existent because the Californians go, it doesn't work for us. We don't want it. We're not going to tell you what works in South Carolina, but we don't want slavery in California. And Douglas goes, there you go. That's what I'm saying. What I'm telling you is that as people move out west, Oregon, California, ultimately Washington State, and so on, they're not going to choose slavery. So even though they're allowed to choose it, we have popular sovereignty, we're going to let them decide the matter, we kind of know how they're going to decide anyway. And what that, what that means is that the free states are going to outnumber the slave states and the delicate balance of power is going to shift. I won't say in the favor of the North, because now we're talking not even so much about the North, but about the West, but it's going to shift against slavery. Let's remember that the middle of the 19th century was a time of massive immigration. Millions of people coming to America, almost all of them from Europe. So this is, these are white guys, but I say the word white uh, with a little bit of qualification because since everybody's white, they weren't understood as white. No one said, oh, there are all these white people coming over. No, because they're all white. They're going to say, oh, there are all these Irishmen coming over. There are all these Germans, all these Scandinavians. There are big debates about some of them don't speak English. They come here speaking German. This was a big issue in Philadelphia, for example. Ben Franklin uh, talked about it as early as the previous century which is the 18th century. Um, so about 40% of the immigrants are Irish, about 33% are German. There are also people coming in from other parts of Europe. And these were Douglas's people. Interestingly, they're not Abraham Lincoln's people. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is actually supported by people who are anti-immigrant. They're so-called know-nothings. Uh, they are people who belong to parties that are called like the American Party. And their idea is that immigrants are bad. And they mean immigrants from Europe are bad. Shut the doors. Now, their main reason for saying this is not cultural. They're not saying that these people aren't, you know, pro-family or they don't want to work. In fact, their fear is the opposite. They do want to work, but they'll work for lower prices than Americans who are here now. So there is an anti-immigrant sentiment mobilizing. Uh, and interestingly, that anti-immigrant sentiment is pro-Republican. Perhaps in some ways, like today, the Democratic Party is the party of welcoming these immigrants and Stephen Douglas is, you guessed it, Irish. He's 
he isn't a new immigrant. His his family has been here for a while, but he has Irish roots. He's very sympathetic to these immigrants, and he believes that they are the solution to the long-term problem in America. The immigrants, in other words, will keep adding to the ranks of America and will ultimately sway the balance against, against slavery. So in a sense, what Douglas is saying is that the example of California because becomes an example for the whole West and ultimately for for the whole country. Already in Douglas's time, the free states um, were greater in population than the southern states. Uh, and the free states uh, also have a majority by themselves in the electoral college. Now, this is critical because you can see right away why no one can win the presidency by having the votes of the South alone. You need the South and you need some elements of the North. And the political kind of genius of the Democratic Party is it was able to get the South uh, by being sufficiently pro-slavery and then to capture enough of the North that was sort of pro-slavery or had some dealings with slavery or was purchasers of Southern cotton or actually just wanted to leave the South alone and didn't think there was a North's business to be interfering in what the South had. Who So you had all these elements in the North uh, that were part of the Democratic coalition. Douglas's job is to keep this coalition together. Lincoln's job is to break up the coalition. In other words, Lincoln's job is to drive a wedge between the Northern Democrats and the Southern Democrats and peel off Northern Democrats who are, who are sufficiently anti-slavery that they can't stay in the Democratic Party anymore. And so if you're asking what is the Lincoln-Douglas debates really all about, it's about the Democratic Party's effort to hang on to being a national party that's drawing from the North and the South, that's uniting the slave owners uh, with Northern Democrats on the principle that slavery should be a, a matter that should be decided by each community for itself. Abraham Lincoln is going to argue that that's not going to work, that that not only doesn't make any sense, but is in fact morally and constitutionally wrong. Uh, and so the Republican Party stakes its mantle on the idea that even though we're not trying to abolish slavery now, the end of slavery should be our goal. Slavery may be a necessary evil, but it's an evil all the same, and we need a party dedicated step by step to getting rid of it. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.